Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. I am honoured to have uh, back on uh, Mr. Sam Vaknin. He's joining us today. We're going to be talking about gender roles in the modern world. Sam, thank you so much for coming on again and chatting to us. My unmitigated pleasure, as usual. Where, whereabouts are you right now, Sam? Right now I'm in uh, Zurich, in okay. a luxury hotel. The, nice. fruits of, the fruits of cold therapy. So is, I, I want to make people envious. Good. They deserve <laughs> I want it. them to scream, why the bad guys get it all? It's horrible. There's no justice. <laughs> why do the bad guys always win? Why? Yeah, there's no justice. You see, I'm, pro- I'm living proof of that. <laughs> so the, uh, the uh, uptake of cold therapy, I take, has been, has been strong. People are, people are getting a lot from it. Yeah, um, it's really spreading. We are, certif- we are certifying 300 therapies all over the world, from Brazil to uh, Russia. Um, and some civilized countries in between, <laughs> and and um, I've been I've been making the rounds, house calls, treating patients all over the world. So it seems to be taking off. the The outcomes are way beyond my expectations. Um, they're very good, and there's a follow up. There's a follow up of already nine years, and so there's no remission. It seems to be working permanently. So as far as, um, for people who don't know, cold therapy is something that uh, is your own unique design, and this is to resolve the issue of narcissistic personality disorder. Is that correct? It's a, well, I wish I could, I wish I could make this boast. It's a, it's a treatment modality which I had designed. I cobbled up, cobbled up techniques from trauma therapies, child psychology, et cetera, et cetera. It involves re-traumatizing the patient, the patient being the narcissist, so... He deserves to be re-traumatized. So re-traumatizing the patient. And then once the window is wide open, charging in and allowing the patient to rid himself or herself of grandiosity. So essentially, cold therapy is about dismantling the false self and the, and grandiose cognitive distortions attendant upon the false self. It doesn't do anything else. It doesn't help the narcissist develop empathy, doesn't help him gain insight into his condition, doesn't help him in his relational, um, interpersonal relations. So it, it doesn't change the narcissistic style, mm. but it changes, it eliminates actually the narcissist's need for narcissistic supply and the, and the constructs, the personality constructs that feed on narcissistic supply voraciously, mm. like the false self. So it's a bit limited. It's a bit limited in what it does, yeah. but it, it goes a long way towards towards kind of abolishing abrasive and antisocial behaviors on a permanent basis. And it makes the narcissist more independent as he, he's no longer an addict. Narcissism is a form of addiction to narcissistic supply. So he's no longer an addict. So it's, it's an addiction treatment actually. So if people wanted to find out more about uh, cold therapy and uh, finding the, the qualified therapist, where would be the best place for them to go for that? Well, at this stage, I should write to me, but okay. uh, there are several videos on my YouTube channel about uh, cold therapy. There are already academic papers published, so you can find them on my website. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, there's lectures in universities that I've given also on YouTube. Uh, a warning, cold therapy is probably the most expensive therapy ever invented. So <laughs> if you don't have a few tens of thousands of dollars to spare, you may wish to spare. Shalom to that. <laughs> I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. I can't help it. It's in my genes. It's in my genes. Never give free anything you can charge for. 
it's genetically determined. What can, what, what can we do? Can yeah, we do? I mean, it's not my fault. It's not my fault, poor me. So I saw many comments on my channel and on my Instagram. People outraged because apparently you had said that people who refuse to get vaccinated deserve to be boiled, bastinadoed, buggered, boiled, and then thrown into a bin. <laughs> is this, is this true? You missed the drawn and quartered part <laughs> prior to the above mentioned procedure. <laughs> now, as usual, there's a massive misrepresentation of what I'd said, which is my favorite condition. Yes. I, uh, I, I made a distinction between people who do their research mm -hmm. prior to consuming medication of any kind, vaccines mm -hmm. included. Mm -hmm. So I'm all for research and I'm all for, you know, consulting authorities, reading online, offline. I mean, no problem with that. Mm. I did say that people who are um, not open to learning or to change as a matter of, of ideology, mm. people who conflate um, their refusal to, to, to get the vaccine mm. with, for example, libertarian ideologies, Mm -hmm. or with with uh, issues with, which have nothing to do with vaccination or medicine or anything mm -hmm. whatsoever. People who um, refuse to admit or to acknowledge facts, the, the few facts that are irrefutable, mm -hmm. there are not many, but there mm -hmm. are a few. Mm -hmm. So these people, I, I claimed in my video that uh, I think they, are, they have mental health issues. And so I stigmatized and pathologized and trampled upon and then defecated on the corpses of those who wouldn't take vaccines. <laughs> Yahweh would be so pleased. Which is an ancient Jewish ritual. <laughs> we exercise. <laughs> so uh, as far as the vaccine goes, I know that um, you yourself are with this particular vaccine, where I remember you saying you were somewhat vaccine cynical because it's a coronavirus and the vaccine wouldn't be that strong. I think I heard you say that a year ago. If you keep up with the research, I, I, I don't. How effective is, is the vaccine currently, do you, do you think? Well, obviously I hadn't been wrong. I'm never wrong. No. So, <laughs> right, right, I'm never wrong. So in March, in March last year, I, I made a video about vaccination. I said, the vaccines are a great idea, great medical advance, I mean, wonderful. Uh, keep diseases at bay and so on and so forth. Mm. However, they're not very effective with coronaviruses. There had been experiments uh, with animals and they hadn't been too successful. Actually, some of them had created adverse effects, um, actually exacerbated the disease. So I said that vaccines um, are a bad idea as a frontline defense, yeah. that the emphasis should be on medication, on finding a medicine, a cure. You, you mean antiviral? Sorry, antivirus, for example, yeah. So that's what I said. And I said that if a vaccine were to be invented or, you know, conjured up, it's likely to be weak, limited. Its, it's efficacy would wane with time. Yeah. And we would need an, an endless string of boosters. Yes. That's all online in my video. I mean, yes. it's not true. Yes. That's March 2020. Yes. And it didn't take much perspicacity or, or genius to, to say this because it's a it's common knowledge about coronavirus um, vaccines. Yeah. So co vaccines right now are very good at limiting um, limiting severe disease, 
mm. preventing hospitalization and definitely deaths. Mm. They're very strong. They're very powerful against uh, against dying, which is helpful if you mm. want to live. Mm -hmm. um, however, they don't provide much of a protection against infection and reinfection. And they do require boosters. And I don't think the third booster would be the last one. No. I think we would need boosters once every six months for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Hmm? yeah. It has to be perpetually, doesn't it? Yes, for the foreseeable future until, uh, until a medication a pill is invented. Mm. Now, mind you, there's not a single antiviral in the whole world mm. which actually works against viruses. Yeah. Uh, even the most potent anti antiviral medications such as Tamiflu, Aciclovir, Valaciclovir, I mean, all these medications. The most they can do is um, prevent the virus from replicating yeah. to some extent. And if taken early on, if taken early on, they're utterly useless after two days. Really? So we don't have, we don't have an effective class of antivirals anywhere in the world for any disease, for any mm. viral disease whatsoever. So, do, you, do you think this was a little bit of a mismanagement that there was so much focus put on vac? It's like a vaccine primary yes. strategy. Do you, do you think this was a mistake? Yeah, there were two mistakes in my view. Um, I'm just afraid to talk because 43 of my videos have been have been deleted by YouTube. Uh, oh. oh, so so let's talk about the novel you're writing about a fictional virus that never happened. Yeah, the plot line yeah. goes like this. <laughs> yeah, the virus started in the United States and infected China. Interesting. So, <laughs> <laughs> a wet market in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, it was stuff. a wet market in the United States. Very wet. Very wet. It was raining all day. It was Seattle. It was a very wet market. <laughs> yeah, so I think there were two mistakes. If they if they delete this video, I mean F them. Yeah. What can you do? I think there were two mistakes. The first mistake was lockdowns. Yeah. I think it was a serious mistake. Yeah. I think what should have been done is a selective lockdown of vulnerable groups and then by all means letting the rest of the population get infected mm. with a weak strain of the virus, what is called the wild, wild type. Mm -hmm. The virus was very weak at its beginning. Mm. It had minimal impact. Mm. They should have left children, they should have let children and adolescents and healthy adults and young adults get infected, mm. thereby creating a barrier equivalent to vaccination. Yeah. Instead, what they have done, they've locked all of us. So the virus had to adapt, mm. had to become more virulent. Actually, mm. they drove the virus to become more virulent. We forced it, it to get stronger, longer. yeah. Yeah. And so now the virus is much stronger. Mm. And so people ask me, why are you not consistent? Why are you not saying the same things now that you had said? This is not the same virus. Delta is not the same virus as the wild type. Absolutely not. It's gained in function, ironically. It's enough. gained in multiple functions. Beta, beta, for example, the beta variant evades immunity almost completely. The delta variant is far more transmissible. Mm. The new variant of delta, the 42, mm. is even more transmissible, and no one knows, but people think it may be more deadly. It's not the same. Has that ever happened with a with a, um what do you call this, where it goes from an animal to a human, a zoonotic virus? Zoonotic, does that ever happen before it's become more transmissible and more lethal? Don't they usually compromise one way or the other? Well, there's, there's a sort of a Gaussian thing, uh, I mean, like a hill. It, uh, viruses initially do become more virulent and more transmissible, but then they compromise themselves. Mutations usually degenerate them mm -hmm. and they become far less um, ominous. Mm. 
So this is exactly what had happened with the with the virus known, I mean, erroneously known as the Spanish flu. Mm. It's exactly what had happened. It's in existence to this very day, by the way. People don't know that. Oh, okay. But it's very weak. Yeah. It's very weak. So hopefully this coronavirus will go will, will go through the same trajectory. Mm. But we, we must realize one thing. We had not committed the same mistakes with previous coronaviruses. Mm. There was, a, there was a flu epidemic in 1957, 3 million people died when the population mm. was half the population of today. Mm. And no one lifted a finger. Mm. No lockdowns, nothing. Yeah. There, were other, there were other epidemics and pandemics and so on where essentially we did nothing except you know, impose mass restrictions and so on. So it, our measures, our initial measures mm. had pushed this virus to mutate in, in a way which is highly atypical mm. of coronaviruses. Mm. All previous coronaviruses waned and, and vanished essentially. MERS, SARS, this one hadn't because it had been pushed to its limits. We call it selective pressure. So, so because I'm not educated in the subject, I thought it was behaving strangely. And I was like, oh, well, that's evidence of it coming from a lab then. It's obviously from gain of function research. I imagine like a Terminator virus that would just, you know, like a super no, ninja. No, no, no need it's, for it's, this. It's just the measure. No need for these speculations. First of all, it's it happens to be untrue. We we they they found coronaviruses with an identical spike. Mm. The spike is the kind of a hook, the mm. hook that the virus uses to latch onto cells. Mm. Um, so they found virus three types of viruses with with an identical spike mm. uh, in in, La in Laos, in the Laotian jungles. So. Mm. It, it was there brewing and festering and fermenting and evolving already long ago. They found, they found these viruses half a year before the, before the pandemic started in China. So, so, you, so you do think this is, it's, it's zoonotic, it's from an it's animal. It's natural, yeah. It's totally natural, natural. spontaneous. Yeah. It's and it just, happen, it just happens to come from Wuhan where the lab is. Accidents do, I mean, coincidences do happen. I don't, I don't see... I don't see any necessary connection. Okay. I do think that the Wuhan laboratory was investigating, was in the throes of investigating similar, similar coronaviruses. Yeah. And I'm not ruling out the possibility that one of them had escaped the lab. Yeah. But I don't think any of them had been engineered malevolently to, to become this mega monster virus. I, no. I okay. think they were being studied. They were yeah. being studied there. Yeah. So, and so the, the measures we had implemented at the beginning forced exerted selective pressure on the virus that mm. was the first mistake and now we have delta and plus the second problem is the emphasis on vaccination now everyone and his dog in epidemiology knows that vaccines are highly inefficacious with coronaviruses yeah. everyone knows this mm. and with influenza viruses equally yeah. everyone knows this that's what a flu jab is that we take every year right it's actually yeah a, you take it every year because vaccine. it's inefficient yeah. You take it every year because it's inefficacious. <laughs> That's why you take it every year. Mm. And, and so it is a great mystery, a great mystery, why they chose to emphasize vaccines over medication. Would, to me, you, it's a great mystery. Would you speculate on that mystery or is that too dangerous? <laughs> there's money in both. Money I, I, in thought, both. I thought maybe it's money, but there's money in both. There's money right. in both. I, I'm not sure why... Why the emphasis was on on vaccine, yeah. and um, I I don't know 
that has, that has been a catastrophic mistake because vaccines, you know, work for a while, then you have to take them again and again and again. There's wariness, it creates resistance, people don't take the boosters. Mm. It's a mess. If we don't come up with medication soon enough, we are seriously doomed. So, you're, yeah, of course, you're right. There's money in both. If we'd focused on antivirals, the pharma companies would make just as, just as much money. I don't know if it's just as much, but billions, definitely. Definitely billions. Billion. So um, could it be that politicians and the people who make the decisions hear the word vaccine, and because they're not educated, they think that means a final you know, solution, it's done, and they just misinterpreted what a vaccine would be. So they saw other other leaders of countries doing it, well, Russia's doing it, Bulgaria. Come on, guys, We will, could it be like a pack, pack mentality, do you think? I think that uh, I think you're onto something. There is this misperception that a vaccine is a firewall. Uh, it's mm. going to prevent infection and disease and hospitalization and death. These are not the functions of a vaccine. It was, ne it was never going to do that, was it? it no. It was never, never. going to do that. Never. That's not what vaccines do. Mm. Vaccines prevent essentially hospitalization and, 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 and death. That's mm. what they do. Mm. They don't prevent it. most vaccines, with the exception of measles and so on. But most vaccines don't don't prevent 100% infection or mm. reinfection. So mm. it was never the aim. But I think politicians, mass media, and advocate groups and so did believe, did misbelieve that this is the aim. They thought it's the ultimate weapon. It's a doomsday weapon. I mean, if you use it, you kill and destroy the virus forever. Yeah. There was the belief that vaccines could create herd immunity. Yeah. Which is utter and sheer nonsense. Only disease can create herd immunity. How did that spread? Because you only have to look on Wikipedia to get a definition of herd immunity, and it takes 15 minutes. So I don't know how that idea spread the vaccine. It, there are many, many bizarre features in this pandemic which are conducive to conspiracy theories, uh, yeah. although, I don't believe, although I don't believe in any one of them. Sure. But, but still, there, and I think it's simply shoddy decision-making by, by arrogant, boisterous, narcissistic leaders. Yes. By self-aggrandizing, self-important medical experts by pharma companies who were pushing for quick profits. Don't forget that the, the technology that underlied the two main vaccines, mm. that's Pfizer and Moderna, mm. this technology had been in development for 10 years with public money, taxpayers' money. Oh. So the, this company, especially Moderna, mm. were about to reap a windfall having invested nothing or mm. close to nothing. Mm. Now that's irresistible. Yeah. While while developing an antiviral would have request would have required R and D funds, self self financing, and so on. Yeah. So there was this temptation to say, oh, we we have we have all the research. It's been publicly financed. All yeah. we have to do is turn up the production line. We're going to make tens of billions. And they were right. That's exactly what had happened. Now this technology is not new. The messenger RNA technology is at least ten years old, at least. To um, just so we don't get this deleted from YouTube, uh, you're not saying anything that, that's against the World Health Organization, which they get very upset about. And you're actually for people getting vaccinated. Just to be clear, you're saying to people they should get vaccinated. The disease, the, the disease now is not the same. Mm. It's a new disease. People oh. do, are not digesting this. Mm. When, when COVID started, I was very much against lockdowns and even against vaccines. Right. 
So people ask me, why, why did you change your mind? I mean, you've been bought, you're a shill, you were paid. I mean, I wish, I wish. <laughs> One billion in my mind bank account. Details after the all, podcast. Yes. All done. <laughs> I wish, and I'm not that influential. Why would I be a shill? I'm not, you know, I'm not. Mm. Uh, so it's not that. It's that mm. the disease had changed. Okay. Really had changed. We are dealing with a new pathogen that has already very little to do with the original. So it's a new disease. Yeah. And we are lucky to have vaccines right now, which yeah. happen to work against this particular variant. We're yeah. very lucky. It could have been yeah. different. Yeah. So it buys us time. Vaccines buy us time. They yeah. are not the cure. They are not the solution. Mm. Absolutely not. Mm. But they buy us some time. Time in which I hope they will develop antivirals and not another idiotic vaccine. Yeah? Yes. Yes. Okay, well then, um, people are going to really struggle in the comments because they won't know which. They can only choose two camps. You know this. People can only deal with two. And you're offering a nuanced argument. God knows what they're going to do. With it. Be like, is he anti? Is he for it? Is he against it? What is this? I am. I think people should get vaccinated. Yep. Because our systems are under stress. Our healthcare yep. systems are under stress. And they're mm -hmm. under stress because we're confronted with a new disease. It's very misleading to call it COVID-19. It's no longer COVID-19. I would call it COVID-21. Okay. It's a new disease. Mm. And so we need time. Mm. We need time to develop antivirals and so on. Get a mm. vaccine. It's going to work for six months. Don't kid okay. yourself. It's going to work for six months, but these six months are critical. Merck has just come up with an antiviral. Others will. At some point, six months from now, 12 months from now, maybe another vaccine, another booster. At some point, there will be an antiviral. You'll take a pill and that'll be it. Then you don't need to be vaccinated. So, as far as uh, just the last question on 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 the on the vaccine thing, when it comes to um, negative side effects from vaccines, do you think this is something that people should be worried about? Have you do you hold much credence for this for this kind of uh, worry? Depends or? depends on their individual uh, medical history. Mm. If you have a history of anaphylaxis, that means allergic reactions to substances, including medication then obviously you shouldn't take Pfizer or Moderna. So it's dangerous. Mm. Even, if, even, if the, even if the incidence of, of such adverse side effects is very low, it's mm. still there. Yeah. If you have a clotting problem or taking anticoagulants on a regular basis because you have a clotting problem, if you have DVT on a regular basis, that's deep vein thrombosis, et cetera, et cetera, you shouldn't take AstraZeneca. Yeah. So it depends on the vaccine and, and your own personal history. If, however, you are utterly you know, free of, of symptoms, mm. or if you're already dead, then you can take the... <laughs> I'm kidding. If you, are free of, if you are free of symptoms and so on and so forth, all vaccines have side effects, all of them. Yeah. There's no, no, not a single exception. All of them have side effects. All of them cause death yeah. sometimes. Yeah. But, but so does food, and so do, so do other medicines. Yeah. Vaccines, for example, are hundreds of times less dangerous than antibiotics. Right. Hundreds of times less dangerous. Antibiotics are really seriously dangerous substances. Mm. In the vast majority of antibiotics, well over 1% of the population, of the consumers, mm. suffer serious consequences. That's know. 1%, that's one in 100. Mm. Mm. And the number, the number for a vaccine is usually one in a million. So it would, it, well, just a minute's thought just makes it make sense if you think about what an antibiotic is of course it's going to be harmful to a to a good no, a good number of the population but i guess that's 
that's normalized. Everybody just takes antibiotics. Yeah. Well, take too everybody's many antibiotics. popping. Everybody's popping pills, which are like a thousand times more dangerous than any of these vaccines. <laughs> Some of them are a million times more dangerous, and, right. and yet everyone is popping pills like it's nothing. You know. I want to ask you about another virus, far more threatening to humanity, and it's this uh, this this psychological pathogen that seems to have uh, spread through the population, animosity between the genders. Uh, all joking aside, uh, I, I have wondered in my darker moments whether this could represent a real threat to the future of humanity, just how, uh, just how much animosity there is. Uh, could you speak to that for us, please? I'm about to launch into a monologue, and you are not <laughs> going to disrupt me. And if you do, there will be like Alex in a clockwork orange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've learned yeah, my lesson, sir. Listen, go, sir. You know these spirals, the spirals, you're gonna <laughs> listen. You're gonna your eyes are heavier and heavier. <laughs> I woke up and my bank account was empty. <laughs> okay. So seriously, I, I, I spot six um, six trends that I think has brought us to where we are. And yes, I fully, I fully agree with the anamnesis. Anamnesis in medicine means history, case history. I agree that there is animosity between the genders. I don't think any other word captures what's going on right now. Mm. I mean, we could say conflict. This, no, it's not. It's not. It's hatred. Mm. There's hatred, hatred. absolute hatred. Mm. And I also don't think it's overgeneralization. Like you could say, only three percent of. I don't think it's three percent. I think it's like something like ninety-three percent. It's bad. It's really bad out there. And it's bad in all age groups, which I think is a first. It's a first in human history. That's like a pandemic that spreads it's, across the whole yeah, population, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a, good, it's a good metaphor. Actually, I have a video comparing uh, narcissism to a virus, but gender, this gender problem is, is also a kind of virus. So it affects all age groups. So you can find women age 65 and 45 and 25 saying exactly the same thing about men and vice versa. Mm. So it's... And I think there are two, there are six reasons. Um, of course, I can never come up with two reasons because then I will not be able to monopolize the podcast. <laughs> I came up with six reasons. <laughs> and they will be delivered in six stages until you are dead, dead, <laughs> yes. dead. Yeah, it's like a rocket, you know? Okay. Um, the first one I call, I coined a phrase to describe it. I call it invulner invulnerability signaling. I think the 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 two genders are signaling to each other i don't need you i'm self-sufficient i'm autonomous i have my goals and i'm focused on them i don't have emotions i'm uninvolved it's like i'm i'm not vulnerable yeah so while in the past until let's say i could safely say 40 years ago people were signaling to each other their vulnerabilities in order for example to have sex mm. or to date or to Today, people are signaling to each other their invulnerability. Mm. It's a kind of F off message, F off yeah. signal, you know? Yeah. The sec and this, is, this has become a, an ideology, an ossified ideology. Yes. Like it's cool, it's cool to be yes. invulnerable, you know? Yes. You, it's cool you, to be you, be a, you want to be a boss bitch or an alpha male player, rigidly right. individualistic, highly narcissistic, and you want to be in a long term relationship. Yeah. How? Yeah. Well, at least you claim, at least yeah. you claim you want. Yeah. The second, and we'll come to that uh, shortly. The second trend, I think, is what um, another scholar called the gender vertigo. 
gender vertigo is gender roles, classical gender roles, male, female, men, women, have been abolished. They haven't been modif modified. That's another mistake in the literature. It's not that gender roles had been modified. They've been absolutely abolished. <laughs> there are no gender roles left. And sexual scripts had also been abolished. So today you don't know what it means to be a man and you don't know what it means to be a man while you're dating. You don't even know what it means to be a man while you're having sex. There are no sexual scripts. There are no dating scripts. There are no gender roles. There are no guidelines. And this creates enormous confusions regarding what is appropriate and inappropriate behavior and what is a code of conduct. Today, the situation is this. Every relationship has to be negotiated from scratch. My mother and father, my grandmother and grandfather, when they had met and were on the way to becoming a couple, unfortunately for me, when they, when they were in this process, they were guided. They were guided by codes. They were guided by gender roles. So they, they needed to, to go the last mile. They didn't need to, to embark on a thousand mile way, uh, uh, march. They just needed to traverse the last mile. Today, if you start a new relationship, you have to negotiate everything. You have to negotiate what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, what is acceptable behavior, what's not acceptable behavior, what, what constitutes cheating, what constitutes, you know, everything has to be negotiated from scratch in yeah. every single relationship. Now, yes. this is destructive. It creates friction. And it's, it's exhausting. Exhausting, bloody exhausting. You took the word out of my mouth, give it back to me. It's exhausting. And so it creates ultimately atomization. People, people give up. People are fucking tired, you know? They don't want to do this anymore. People they stay give at up. Home. People like this guy. <laughs> no, I'm talking about human beings. People. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Richard. You've been, you've, been, you've been exposed. You've been exposed. So they just give up. And yeah. there's a massive process of optimization. In the year 2000, the year 2016 was the first year when a majority of, of women and a majority of men didn't have a single contact with the other sex, with the exception of pizza delivery boy. I mean, what didn't what have year a, was that? 2016. 2016, There was the first year that majority of women and majority of men in the West didn't have a single contact, single meaningful contact with a member of the opposite sex. So there's total atomization. Now the, the next trend is uh, what is called the stalled revolution. Stalled revolution is not my term, it's a clinical term. Stalled revolution means that women describe themselves more and more using traditional masculine terms. So now we have a situation where women use seven, every seven out of eight self-descriptive words are traditional masculine words. That's women. So we, we, have, we have created what I call unigender. There's a single masculine gender. Mm. Femininity had been abolished. There are men with males with penises and males with vaginas, but we are all masculine. This is unigender. Women are breadwinners. Women have surpassed men in a variety of areas. Women are more educated than men, etc., etc. So women had become men and aspired to be men, aspired to be actually narcissistic and psychopathic men. So there is a convergence of the of the in the species. There's a convergence 
between men and, and women. And the politically correct media, uh, mainstream media, adores this uniformity. I mean, embellishes it and promotes it. So today you have the idiotic, moronic phrase, pregnant people. The CNN, I'm kidding you not, the CNN and the New York Times no longer use the word pregnant women. It's pregnant people. It's like saying people with testicles. You know, not men, God forbid, people with testicles. And they're saying pregnant women, pregnant people. Like we are all people. We are not men. We are not women. We are people. And some of us mysteriously get pregnant, you know. <laughs> but we are all people. This is shocking. This is shocking. Eliminating this beautiful difference between the genders, the source, the engine of attraction, the engine of sex, sexuality, the engine of fecundity and fertility and procreation and recreation. Eliminating this had made us so much poorer, so much poorer. We are utterly impoverished, utterly impoverished. Um, if you have something to say, you have my permission to say it from time to time. Just, don't, over, gender, just don't overdo it, please. I'll keep it short. The point you made earlier about gender roles uh, being abolished, I just want to support that by saying gender roles are now illegal. They're, they're effectively criminalized. Like, so of course they're abolished. They're not modified. You're 100% right. If you try to suggest a gender role for a man or a woman, as a man or a woman, you're wrong. You could be trans, you can be gay, but if you suggest a man or a woman, if you suggest anybody has a gender-based role, it's essentially a thought crime. It's a thought, so absolutely it's abolished. I, I, I yeah, it's abolished. abolished. The concept of gender has been abolished. Mm. Uh, gradually, the concept of sex is abolished via sex fluidity. So we have sexual fluidity. You mentioned, you mentioned transgendered and transsexual uh, people. Mm. They do have their innate experience of not belonging to the biological sex. Mm. And there's no, no reason for them not to act on this innate feeling mm. and, and change sex. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about gender fluidity and sex fluidity as an ideology. Mm negating the biological sex and the social cultural gender as patriarchal, evil, malevolent constructs intended to enslave women and so on and so forth. I, it's the ideological crust above all these changes that renders us stultified and, and ultimately nullified probably. Yeah. So this is fluidity. The, the next uh, trend I think is what I call defiant agency. So this, this, big, this big brouhaha about being agentic, you know, you need, mm. to, you need to reacquire agency, you need to be self-efficacious. And of course mm. that's healthy. Mm. Agency and self-efficacy are healthy. They're mm. markers of mental health. Mm. But they had been imbued with aggression mm. and they went from assertiveness to defiance, mm. reckless defiance. Mm. So now people show, display their agency or their self-efficacy by trampling on other people, by acting recklessly, by being violent and aggressive, by becoming abusive. This is a new, this is a new agentic men and women, you know? Oh, sorry, people. These are the new agentic people, men and women. They will delete this video. Horrible. I'm using, I mean, it became like the N-word, you know? Yes. Men, women, like the N-word. Yeah. Yes. You're not supposed to say the N-word. Um, 
so benign discourses, because there's always been there's always been a ten, there's always been a healthy tension mm. uh, between men and women. There's always been a, a discourse between genders, and these were benign discourses. Mm. Um, at least, let's say, in the last hundred years, one hundred fifty years, they, they were benign discourses. Uh, prior to that, some of the discourses were not so benign. <laughs> Women were really mistreated and enslaved and so on. There's no question about this. But in the last 150 years, it's no longer true. Yeah. All intergender discourse has been essentially benign and constructive. How do I know? Women are far more liberated and emancipated. Mm-hmm. Had the discourse been malevolent and malignant, women would not have been where they are today. Mm. So it, see, it seems that men had participated in the discourse in mm. good faith. Yes. Judging by the outcomes, yeah. the discourse had been a good faith discourse. Yeah. And had it, had had it been, not been, we wouldn't be where we are today. I yes, women. That. Women would not be where they are today. Yeah, well, sorry, women, women wouldn't be. Yeah, yeah sorry, uh, women. No, no. People would not be. People, pregnant people, people would never be where they are today. Pregnant people would never be where they are today. <laughs> so the intergender dialogue had been corrupted and contaminated, became malignant, owing to this defiance in lieu of agency. Mm-hmm. And finally, yes, there is such a thing. Finally, even in my monologues, they come to an end. <laughs> You'll have to carry me on a stretcher before I finish. No you have way. to carry the audience on some stretches. <laughs> <laughs> Bring on the stretchers. Yes. So the last thing I want to I want to point to, and I really am curious to hear your point of view. Re- seriously, mm. I, I mean mm. it. I mean, mm. because I've seen some of your videos, and there mm. were there were great insights there. So I'm, I'm very, oh, I'm thank very. You. Um, there was meant as an insult. So. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> 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 so the last trend I think is what I call the enshrined double standard. Now there's been always a double standard. Women who behave um, in a certain way sexually were sluts. Men who behave the same way were studs. We all know this. This is a double standard. But what happened is an amazing thing. Women had adopted the male double standard. Women women tried to conform to male stereotypes of sexually emancipated women. If you ask chauvinistic males, what do you think about sexually emancipated women? They would say, oh, they're sluts. Mm. And now there's slight slut pride. Like women are proud to be sluts, but they mm-hmm. don't realize that to be a slut is to conform to the most extreme chauvinistic male stereotype. If you're proud to be a slut, mm. you are a chauvinistic man, chauvinistic man's wettest dream. Yes. You conform to his worldview. You so claims of empowerment women claim to be empowered. Mm. But there are multiple studies, for example, by Lisa Wade, by Mm. Kerry Cohen, that demonstrate that the the women who claim to be empowered the most, Mm. they are the women who had adopted and internalized and interjected the double standard. For example, these women told the the researchers, um, I've had like 40 sexual partners, but don't tell anyone <laughs> because it's shameful, right. you know? Yeah. So they are emancipated, they're liberated, they are empowered mm. under the mm. carpet, secretly, surreptitiously. Yes. Why? Yes. Because men will think badly of them. Yes. 
they yeah. had adopted the male the male double standard and this duality this self-denial this self deception deception mm. i think is driving the genders apart right because women are conforming to specific male stereotypes and mm. the majority of men find this very off-putting mm. because the majority of men are not chauvinistic psychopathic narcissistic men yeah and I women mean, are trying to conform to the stereotypes and mm. to the expectations mm. of chauvinistic, psychopathic, narcissistic men. So mm. the majority of men are beginning to find women disgusting, mm -hmm. repulsive, and off-putting. Yep. Yep. I mean, I never, means, I never means words. I mean women, but not words. So, <laughs> so there, is, there is a break, a schism between the, the genders because women are acting, acting the part that actually the vast majority of men don't want them to act. Mm. And men are acting the part that now women are rejecting because it doesn't sit well with the uh, alpha male, narcissistic, yeah. chauvinistic, uh, psychopathic uh, kind of guy, you know, the bad yeah. guy. Yeah. So women, because they are rejecting themselves, because when you internalize as a woman, when you internalize this point of view, you actually, you, you actually introject the double standard. Mm. When you say, I'm a slut, supposedly it's proud but actually deep inside you feel shame mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. this creates self-harming and self-trashing behaviors mm -hmm. the, the incidence of sexual self-trashing mm -hmm. and other forms of self-harming among women mm -hmm. is much much higher than 40 or 30 or 20 years ago for example mm -hmm. the incidence of depression among teenage women under the age of 18 mm -hmm. and then later in later studies under the age of 25 the incidence of depre depression is up, hold your breath, up 500%. Jesus Christ. Anxiety disorders among teenage women is up, are, are up more than 350%. These are studies by Twenge and Campbell, and these are studies that terminated in 2008 and 2018. So these are mm. old studies. These are like three, four-year-old studies, the newest mm. ones. I think mm. the situation is much, much worse now. Yeah. Why is that? It's long before COVID. Yeah. The influence of social media, of course, but also I think the fact that women had internalized male chauvinistic, psychopathic, narcissistic stereotype, and they feel bad with it. They they don't feel they feel egos dystonic. They feel ashamed. They feel guilty. Mm -hmm. They act this way because they're mm -hmm. expected to act this way because they are empowered. Yeah. But deep inside. It sucks. Yes. They feel bad. They feel they feel they are not themselves. They feel they are acting. It's a part. Yes. yes. And, and I think that's self-harming and self-trashing. And anyone, anyone who, who has had sex or a date with a young woman lately would confirm that. It's yes. highly politically incorrect to say this, but it's very true. It is what it is. And I've I've had the the few the few girls I have dated in the last couple of years, uh, two of the three admitted exactly what you said to me over time, slowly and in their own words, but that they felt like they were compelled to have sex. They just felt tremendous cultural pre pressure to be promiscuous and to relate that promiscuity to strength. It, it, it was so uh, stereotypical. One girl even showed me a book that she bought that was written. That was it was written in a foreign language. Um, uh, only good girls cry and it was to teach you how to be a bad girl and she's like I bought this book because my friends recommended the book and this and I'm like you know you don't have to do that 
what I would say um, is if I was, when I was 28, I wanted a high notch count. I was quite psychopathic. I was practically homeless. I was doing drugs. I was a pretty naughty boy. This would be my wonderland. This version of feminism. These girls say it's feminism. And I'm like, well, I studied feminism at university. It doesn't look like feminism to me. This is wonderland. You take a girl on one date. She will have sex with you that night. Not just sex. I know this is horrible. It's graphic. Some people will be triggered, whatever. They will do everything. They will do anything with you now. Absolutely. That a girl previously, I would have had to have been with her for a year before she'd even talk about it. First date or second date. Yep. You're, you're right. You, you were the one who raised the, the, the specter that this may be a form of self-harming in our yes. correspondence. You wrote this yes. to me. Yes. yes. I, I also mentioned it in my videos. Yes, absolutely. I fully agree. It's a form of self-trashing and self-harming, which is in t- it's self-punishment for not being you, for succumbing, for giving in, for, for falsifying yourself. You know, I'm not saying that all women are Madonnas or all women are whores. Or I'm not, I don't, it's, not, it's not what I'm saying. It's what that's I'm, su- what that's I'm saying. It's such a cheap is- repast. It's such a cheap repast. Everybody says, oh, you just have a Madonna whore complex. Okay, so don't think about what's being yeah, said. Yeah, that's just not what I'm saying. Away. Yeah. I'm actually, yeah. I'm actually the, the greatest feminist. I'm saying women should free themselves of yeah. the male gaze. Mm. The male gaze, what mm. they did instead, mm. they adopted the gaze of the mm. psychopathic, narcissistic male mm. rather than mm. the gaze of the majority of us. Yeah. majority of you who are not psychopathic and narcissistic and so on. Yeah. so they've alienated something like 90 percent of the male population yes and they are stuck 90%. with these 10 percent but so what so what you were saying there just to back that uh the guys in the manosphere the red pill community the pickup community they say with they do these youtube videos and they keep reporting that on tinder the women are only getting with eight to ten percent of the men that are there so that, it, it, like, we have this, we have hard data that backs this. There's actual statistical data that suggests roughly, you know, eight to ten percent of the men and the rest ignored. And those eight to ten percent of men need to have certain signals. They need to be in a certain category, and they they have a high degree of mate selection. And what they do with that is they don't choose to be monogamous. They choose to mate with multiple women. And Why the would women... they choose to be monogamous? Monog- monogamy is a cost. Yes. Why would you pay anything for something you get free? It's not nice to say, but women were trading sex. Women were trading sex for mm. stability, longevity mm. of relationships, and mm. child rearing. Mm. That was a deal. And now they're giving it free. Yes. They're giving it free. It's, it's insane on their part. Utterly it really insane. is. It's, it's totally self-destructive. Yeah. And they're calling it self-empowerment. And I'm like, this is the most de- disempowering thing you could do. And you're lit like, if I was that same guy who just wanted to be as promiscuous as possible, yep. it's never been easier. Ne- I don't even have to leave. The- I don't have to go to a bar. I pull out an app and I'll find girls within a five mile radius. And it's, it's str- if you don't approach them sexually straight away and say, you're really fit and I like your boot, they, they have a problem. They're like, what's yes. wrong with you? Like, why are you not? You should be coming on to me sexually immediately. And if you yes. don't, oh, you're a simp, you're a beater, I'm not. I'm not interested. It's, um, as you say, totally self-destructive. I watched the video. This, again, will really annoy people. But I watched the video of yours where you said, well, think about the value of what you're doing. Like, if we perform a specific sex act, and that's between me and you, 
There's a difference if we've only done it with each other. If you've done it with three other people, that's different. If you've done it with 30 other people, 300 other people, we are reducing the value of what we're doing. Even as a man, if you know that I've done this for 300 other women, you're not going to value, you, you're going to feel a certain way. I know that men and women are different, but you are going to feel a certain way about that because it makes it less special. Then I don't have as much to offer. What I offer is not so special as pedestrian. There's 20 women on my street who've experienced what you just experienced. Anything that is commodified yeah. is devalued. Anything that's commodified is devalued. So, mm. yes, I think I think another another issue is that women feel pressured into into engaging in sex acts, which in the past used to be reserved for intimate partners. Yeah. I mean, one night stands have been around since since biblical times, I assume, mm. but still. Until very recently, women and men had maintained a kind of inventory. These yeah. acts I'm doing with strangers, yeah. and these acts I reserve for intimate partners. I never yeah. kiss with strangers. Right. I never lick strangers certain parts of anatomy. I mean, <laughs> there are some things I never do with a stranger. And I do them only with intimate partners so that my intimate partner can feel special. Yeah. And yeah. now this is gone. Yeah. The specialness is gone. The mystery, the, I mean, it's so sad. It's especially said for people my age, yeah. because I have I, I had witnessed and experienced it before, yeah. and now it's gone. Now it's gone. You know, I I'm I'm old enough to have seen the cost uh, because you know when I was dating when I was eighteen that's nineteen ninety six and I would say the the dating scene has changed tremendously. Like attitudes to men and women, as a man now, though I can have access to to a woman's body and to her sexually. I won't get close to her mind because I am the enemy and I am simply a cut out avatar of an evil man. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter. There's zero trust. It can take years to get any degree of trust now because it's just, I, I, like you said, it's, it's ideological. And it's like uh, Gad Saad comes up with that idea of these ideological infections that function like parasites, it gets into the mind like a virus and you can't fight it. There's, um, you you mentioned in one of the six uh, the six things that that push the genders apart. You said something about the communication had become hostile, it become malignant. The assumptions and yeah, the, the dialogue, the intergender dialogue, the intergender yeah. dialogue. You can't dialogue. You no. can only dialogue as their as their cut out avatar of a male, and everything outside of that, where well, you'll just get like a bewildered look, like what what. What is this talking dildo? Like, what's he trying to talk to about? Yeah, it's it's on the surface. Is everything is kept on the surface, and this this harks back to the first harks back to the first trend, invulnerability signaling. Yes. If you let anyone dip in, dip inside, yeah. they're going to see your vulnerabilities, mm. and you don't want them to see your vulnerabilities because they can hurt you, and they're going to hurt you. Mm. It's for sure they're going to hurt you. I mean, that's a, that's a given. It's a given. So you're not going to let them hurt you. You're not going to let them in. Well, except in one sense. So, so it's it's a best situation. Now, there's a there's a new there are new trends developing which are not captured by the ministry, or actually wrongly captured by the ministry. For example, um, starting a few years ago, majority of women had renounced men psychologically in the sense that they now are actually looking for what the manosphere called beta. Majority of women since 2018 and in studies and so on and so forth are actually selecting beta males to, to use the manosphere's uh, phraseology. Yeah. 
using bitter males or choosing bitter, selecting bitter males, even for one night stands, because women had adopted narcissistic and psychopathic um, male role models. And so now they want to feel superior. They want to feel in control. So we have studies, quite a few. I, I have a bibliography on my, on my uh, various YouTube uh, videos. We have recent studies that show that women actually, there's been a shift in preference for the first time in human history. There's been a shift of preference from alpha successful winners mm. to better losers. Women now are seeking better losers to feel superior and good and so on. It's pretty shocking. And of course, mm. the manosphere guys are denying this, but they're no, not they're, updated. They're... they're simply not updated. No, they stick. They stick with a rigid ideology of yeah. um, hypergamy. Yeah. She's always going to choose an alpha over you. That's, that's no longer. That's no longer true. Actually, I can see professional women of girls not doing that. Professional women yeah. who are self-sufficient economically and so on, they yeah. actually seek better males that mm. they can kind of home um, subjugate at home and kind of rule over and yeah. you know and bully dildos essentially. Mm. You know, so the women had women had adopted narcissistic and psychopathic male role role models mm. rather than good healthy constructive male role models i don't know why should they should seek male role models at all but mm. they chose the wrong ones definitely yeah yeah it's a very sad uh, a very sad scene what do very you see sad... i was just going to ask you though if there was a solution what do you think the solution would look like I think um, same-sex relationships are going to explode because a solution that I would enjoy, Sam. <laughs> I mean, why would you why would you go for a poor for a poor imitation if you can have the original? Yeah. So I don't want I don't want a woman who's a who's a crap version of a man. I may as well just get a real man. Yeah, go get a real man. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Same with women, by the way. Same with women. I mean, why would you go for an effeminate? Uh, pseudo-feminine pseudo men, right? Just yeah. go for a, for a woman. So I think there will be absolutely an explosion of uh, same-sex uh, relationships and sexuality. Mm. I think there is going to be a lot of uh, a lot more atomization. So there will be, and we are already seeing this. For example, the frequency of sex and dating among people younger than thirty-five, mm. and especially among people younger than twenty-five is much lower than among their parents' generation and their par their grandparents' generation. So, uh, uh, no, people under the age of 25 date far less and have sex far, far fewer times than their parents and their grandparents. We're already seeing this. Dating, just to give you a number, to blow your mind, dating had declined within 10 years by 60%. That's six zero within 10 years. By the way, hookups are on the decline, even. Even hookups. I have a video on hookups where there's a survey of literature which um, supports everything I'm saying here. But so we are seeing a situation where people withdraw from any contact mm. with other people, mm. even of the opposite sex, if they are heterosexual. Well, it makes sense because it's just painful. It's just a punitive experience. Dating. I would now even say for. Even, even if it's not painful, it's always frustrating. Yes, yes. It's, it's, it, it's exasperated. Yeah, okay. So baseline, you're going to be exasperated. Yes. You're not yes. really going to get what you're looking for. Yeah. 
And if you push further into the lobster pot, then you will get you'll get really hurt. So it's that exasperation all the way to hurt. If you signal vulnerability, yeah. if you open up, if you become yeah. vulnerable, yeah, you'll get hurt. Yeah. And otherwise, you will have a supercilious, superficial, on the surface relationship, which will end in, in frustration. Because whatever your expectations are, then they're going to be met. So people give, have given up on each other. They've mm. given up on each other, mm. or they gravitate into same-sex uh, relationships or experimental sex relationships. So we have a surge, for example, in swinging, open relationships, open marriages, and so yeah. on and so forth. Already 3% of the population identify as open relationships and open marriage. Mm. 3% sounds a sounds small number, mm. but it's a gigantic leap That's from the 1950s. Mm. Enormous. So, and people are going to give up on each other. I think ultimately we will all be ensconced and cocooned um, in our small apartments or big apartments or whatever. Mm. And we're going to interact digitally and we're going to find sex substitutes. So men had already find, found sex substitutes. The consumption of pornography is through the roof, mm. five times higher than only five years ago. Mm. There's a book called The Billion Wicked Thoughts which documents this phenomenon. So pornography by now is definitely the main substitute to 3D sex, as far as men are concerned. So men consider now pornography to be a full substitute, full-fledged substitute to the real thing. Women are not there yet, are not there yet, although they're gravitating towards pornography. I think women will need more. So I don't know, sex dolls or whatever, but, mm. or maybe, um, maybe digital sex with tactile, tactile input or something. There was, there was a girl I was uh, seeing and uh, she told me that three years previous from the ages of 21 to 24, she sustained a sex only relationship with a guy. And she said it was my friends with benefits relationship. And I was really sad and she couldn't understand. She couldn't understand my sadness. I'm like, you're 21. And, and you're engaging because it, it takes a degree of cynicism. No, no, I'm not shaming anybody who's in a friends with Ben. That's fine. But 21 for three years. And I was like, didn't you catch feelings? She was like, he would catch feelings. Then I would push him away. Then I would catch feelings and he would push me away. I was like, that's a recipe for trauma. <laughs> you're not, yeah. you're, you're not going to walk away from that, you know, bouncing and happy and full of yeah. joyful. You're both going to walk away feeling pretty hurt by that. We all make mistakes. I made terrible mistakes in my twenties, but am I being, am I getting old? I mean, that sounds quite cynical for a, that it was sustained for so long for a 21 year old. What, what, what do you think about that? She gave up. Yeah. She gave up on any alternative, obviously. Yeah. And she settled for what she could get. Lisa Wade in her studies describes conversations with young girls between the ages of 15 and, and 30. Mm. And she describes these, these young women say, the worst thing you can do is show emotions. You should never cling. You should never ever write to your sex partner after the first uh, sex, after mm. the first one night stand, you know. Mm. Um, they mock, they mock other girls who do this. Mm. They say that it's a common practice for men to send them SMSs or text messages saying, don't call me again, don't contact me again. It was a one-time thing. Mm. They say that there's a code of behavior where both sides intentionally get drunk so that they can blame the drink and say, 
this, there was nothing there. It wasn't emotional. It wasn't even sexual. We were just drunk. Mm. So drink had become a kind of alibi. Drinking mm. had become a kind of alibi. It's not me, it's the alcohol or whatever. Mm. Mm. So there's a whole subculture which encompasses, according to Lisa Wade, about 81% of young women. Now, Lisa, Lisa Wade is the preeminent scholar in the field. So she thinks about four-fifths of young women adhere to this code, mm. which is a code of rejection, yeah. a code of alienation, a code yeah. of cold detachment, code of, a code of cynicism, and mm. a code of what I call signaling invulnerability. I'm not interested in you. I have no emotion towards you. I'm not even sexually attracted to you. I was bloody drunk. You know, Don't ever call me. Don't mm. dare to write to me. You clingy, needy, codependent, disgusting amoeba, you know? <laughs> and this is the intergender dialogue among the young. It's not 8%, it's 81%. What you're describing actually clears up some of my bewilderment over the last few years, because I think I've dipped in and out of that culture, but without consent, I just didn't, I didn't know. So I'd have these bewildering experiences and all the coordinates were off, and in all three cases when I followed up and was like trying to take them out during the day and get to know them, they were completely confused, complete and repulsed at first. Like I had to, I was like, don't, <laughs> it's, creepy. it's creepy. It's creepy. to know me. It's creepy. You want to date them after a one night stand? What's wrong with you? You it's are me. sicker I'm than sick. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> you need cold therapy. Yeah. In Zurich. <laughs> Come to Switzerland. <laughs> That's where the solution will be, in Switzerland. The, the final solution. What do you mean the solution? Yeah, the final solution. <laughs> final solution. But, but, but now that you've said it's kind of like, um, it's almost like a, a subculture, that, yeah. that explains how I felt. I was like, I've dipped into because it felt like a cold tour. I just didn't know the rules. So I was like dipping in. I do what I've been doing since 1995 or whatever. And then I'll be looked at like, what the bloody hell's wrong with this guy? What's wrong with you trying to share things with me and get to know me? That's really, really strange. Another, ph another phenomenon is self-pornography. So mm. growing numbers of uh, mainly women, but mm. also men, generate pornography mm -hmm. and just give it out. Mm -hmm. So they have live cams, not for money, not for money, exhibitionistic. Mm -hmm. So they have live cams or they, and they generate self-pornography and put it out. We're talking millions. And um, so this is one, one phenomenon. And self-pornography uh, is a substitute for a connection. It's a temporary kind of thing. You know, I've had a connection for a few minutes. Mm. They, there is an objectif self-objectification going on, on a mass scale. Thank you for saying that, because I don't think the feminists know that. They say, well, men keep objectifying women. I'm like, see what women are doing to women. And it's not even other women do it. They do it to themselves. Themselves, yeah. Aggressively. Yeah. And very early on in the relationship, I'm being sent nudes. Yeah. And I'm like, nobody asked you for this. Yeah. And yeah. they're asking for me to reciprocate. And I'm like, there's absolutely no way I'm sending yeah, sexting, you a picture of me. Sexting, like, and, sexting and camming. For example, masturbating with a stranger yeah. you've just met. Yeah. Is, is uh, women masturbating with strangers they've just met is absolutely yeah. common. Absolutely common. I wouldn't say it's um, an outlier. I think it's standard behavior. Sexting is definitely common, like sending texts or photos. But camming is becoming more and more prevalent. So today, a woman who refuses to masturbate to you on, on camera, um, yeah. you know, 
she needs help. Something's wrong with her. Feel, and of I course, like it's dependent again. <laughs> so here's the thing: mm. this empowerment thing mm. is all male dictated and male oriented. Hundred yes. percent. It's ironical. It's crazy. It's mind blowing. Mm-hmm. It's a male's yeah. wonderland. It's, it is. It's, it's everything that I would have wanted as a young, yeah. horny man. Women yeah. on demand, yeah. they, they think, they, I don't have to tell them. They do it, and they're yeah. proud of doing it. Yeah. No guilt, no pressure, no effort. It's great. Fantastic. And you can't, when you try to explain it to women, I've given, I've given recently lectures to mm. COVID-free, vaccinated women, of course. So when you, try to exp- when you try to explain this to women, they get really furious at you. Yes. I know. Tell them, we, don't we will, you see? They'll be furious in the comments there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't you see what you're doing? You are converting yourself into a commodity, you're objectifying yourself, mm. and then you are giving yourself free to men who expect it fully of you because they have stereotypes of you. And then you're proud of it and you have pride, slut pride month. I'm kidding you not. Sl- slut pride parade. Go online. Great. Well done, humanity. Well done. Our future is rosy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so hot here, you can't imagine. That's the problem with those hotels. They overheat them and they won't let you open the windows. They don't let you control the heat. No, I can open the window, but if I do that, um, there'll be too much light. Mm. And then your viewers won't be able to see me, which, coming to think of it, may be a plus. But still, <laughs> you know, I'm a narcissist. I insist to be seen. They need Most... to be seen. You will see me. Who do you think you are? <laughs> so, um, Sam, I wanted to ask you today about your uh, interpretation of of the shared fantasy space i found this fascinating um when when you first told me about it and then you have a concept that that was developed from that called emotional artifacts that i'd like to get in with you today as well um could you give us a brief outline of the shared fantasy space no i don't feel like talking about it i've i've done so many videos about it can we talk about something else like uh... Okay, okay. (laughs) Wine, song. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Shared fantasy, bloody hell, boring. Okay. Shared fantasy is is a form of paracosm. Paracosm is kind of an alternative reality, alternative universe. So shared fantasy is an alternative universe constructed by the narcissist who then invites a potential intimate partner or source of supply to enter this universe and to adhere to its percepts, to its tenets, to its underlying uh, foundational principle. When I say adhere, it means to accept the paracosm or the shared fantasy as real. Mm. And when I say adhere, it also means to subject one's cognitions and emotions mm. to the exigencies and parameters of the shared fantasy. The shared fantasy is a mind-warping, mind-altering experience. Mm. It's not just Disneyland. Mm. It's like as if you were buying a ticket to Disneyland and then you could never exit because Disneyland would have become your world and you would have had to accept the reality of Mickey Mouse and the fact that, I don't know, there's a castle on the hill and so on. So 
you have to reside in the shared fantasy from the moment you're invited in. Um, shared fantasies are the way narcissists create dependency in, in the intimate partner, because what they do, they idealize the intimate partner, and then they allow the intimate partner to form emotional attachment with the idealized image. So, and this is a form of self-love. Mm -hmm. So when the intimate partner falls in love with the narcissist, he is not, he doesn't fall in love with the narcissist. As you correctly noted, the narcissist is unknowable. It's mm -hmm. an unknown quantity. You can't fall in love with the unknown. Mm -hmm. So the intimate partner doesn't fall in love with the narcissist. The intimate partner falls in love with his or her idealized image that the narcissist grants you access to. Mm -hmm. So narcissist idealizes you, then lets you be in touch with your idealization, and this is irresistible. Mm -hmm. And you fall in love with yourself or with your idealized self. So this is the shared fantasy. Now, shared fantasy has two effects, which are not often discussed. One is what is called mass psychogenic illness. There's a clinical term. Mass psychogenic illness is the correct term for, ch for shared psychosis. The suspension, the suspension of disbelief, suspension of judgment, the ability to adopt a we versus they mentality, the adherence to rules of the game within the shared fantasy that are often unrealistic, suspension of reality or reality impairment of reality testing. All this is known as mass psychogenic illness. This is one effect, and it affects both the narcissist and the intimate partner. The second thing that happens in a shared fantasy, and it happens exclusively to the victim, is, the pro is prolonged grief disorder. That's a new disorder that's been identified a, few, a year or two ago. Um, about 10% of people, when they emerge from a, in, an injurious, hurtful relationship, mm -hmm. they are unable to recover. No matter what, they're simply mm -hmm. unable to recover. They grieve and mourn forever. And this is known as prolonged grief disorder. So the vast majority of the victims of narcissists have prolonged grief disorder. Mm. Now, prolonged grief disorder is very interesting in itself. So maybe it merits another podcast. Mm -hmm. This is newly discovered, and there are numerous things that apply to victims of narcissism. But the question is, why does the shared fantasy have this power? Why does it generate mass psychosis and prolonged grief? And, I mean, what, what in it? What in it does this? I mean, when you go to Disneyland, when you exit, you don't have a prolonged grief disorder unless you're a Jew. The price of a ticket can do this to you. So, shared fantasy is a kind of Disneyland. Why? What's in? What in it causes these um, shattering effects? So the reason is, of course, that the shared, the shared fantasy is actually a trance-like or pseudo-hypnotic pseudo-hypnotic state. The shared fantasy involves a, prim a primary stage called grooming or love bombing, which induces in the victim essentially a trance state or a pseudo-hypnotic state, mm. clinically known as a dissociative state. In a dissociative state, we have several effects. I'm, I'm leading to the artifacts, but unfortunately, you have to go this way. I mean, there's no... no right I, way. I... I think I think people need to hear this. And I should have said at the beginning where this conversation came from, just just so people are anchored is I've been in a, a narcissistically abusive relationship. Again, 
good good for me that's brand damaging information do with it what you will um and i asked sam is it possible to experience in artificially induced emotions because i thought i was feeling things i shouldn't be feeling and everything sam is telling us now leads you through an understanding of the the superstructure behind how it definitely happens how it happens you must understand the shared fantasy space and you must understand uh you know exactly as you're saying this kind of dissociated hypnotic state because everybody your clients mine the victims of narcissistic abuse kind of they come around and they go what 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 did i do what was that and maybe the prolonged grief state is they're not really coming out they're sort of staying in that shared yep. fantasy space uh, we should do a, a different a, a whole other podcast on that as well you're right mm. I, I just wanted to say that so people are, yeah, are anchored in yeah thank you for clarifying yeah well, i'm leading to 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 emotional artifacts. Emotional artifacts are simulated emotions. They're not real, but we'll come to it in, in a minute. We, we need to understand how they come about. Unfortunately, mm. we have to go a long way. Mm. So there is this shared fantasy, which is essentially a dissociative state, or in, in colloquial terms, it's a trance state or a pseudo-hypnotic state and so on. And it involves amnesia. So there's a lot of forgetting involved. Um, it involves depersonalization. The victim often feels that it's not she who is involved, but kind of either someone else or she let go of herself. She's kind of observing herself on the outside. This is known as depersonalization. There's derealization, also colloquially known as gaslighting. Derealization is when you misinterpret reality or you believe that you are misinterpreting reality or that reality is not real and what is real is not reality, etc. So there are problems with gauging reality and, and judging reality. And, and so on so this is and gaslighting does this to you and finally there's fantasy the, the paracosm fantasy is the opposite of reality of course and the main aim of fantasy is to prevent you from acting now people confuse fantasy with dream when you dream when you have a daydream or when you dream about becoming for example you dream of becoming me i know that so when you <laughs> because I'm more handsome lately. No, but if you dream, a dream is a practical thing. It's a step in planning. Mm. It usually results in some interface with reality. It could be a failed interface, but there's always an interface with reality via planning. Fantasy is the exact opposite. The main aim of fantasy is to inhibit action, to prevent you from interfacing with reality, mm -hmm. to keep you captive captive in a dreamlike state but it's not dream it's fantasy so mm. fantasy the paracosm these are the elements of the dissociation it's like a bad dream you're unable to act unable to move because of the fantasy you're not sure you are yourself because of depersonalization you're not sure that what you're witnessing is real derealization and you keep forgetting things mm. so put all these together you're in a dissociative state at that point, when you are most vulnerable, when your ability to interact with realities had been disabled to its maximum, the abuser starts a process called entraining. I believe that I was the first to apply the concept of entraining to abuse in October last year. Entraining is a concept from neuroscience. It's when external input, such as music, has an effect on brain waves so as to create, so as to cohere and synch synchronize the brainwaves in a specific form, a way, 
So uh, the science of entraining in neuroscience had demonstrated in multiple ways that we can use external input to affect the brain to produce coherent, cohesive structures of brain waves. This is this could be easily described as brainwashing. So the abuser use, uses entraining to brainwash. Now, what is entraining? Entraining is any external stimulus. Could be music, but could be verbal abuse. If you listen to the abuser when he verbally abuses you, it is exactly like music. First of all, he repeats many sentences again and again and again. There's a lot of repetition. Mm. It's like a refrain in a song. Like it's like he's singing the abuse. And there's and a there's refrain. A ref and the refrain is this sentence that keeps recurring, you know. Second thing, the abuse is never never typical speech. It's a, not a speech act. It's not like people talking. The abuse is structured. It has a kind of mathematical regularity. It has repeated phrases. It resembles music very much. I call it the music of abuse. Exactly like music entrains the brain, abuse, verbal abuse, entrains the brain. The abuser creates in your brain specific wave patterns. Now, he doesn't know what he's doing because he's not a neuroscientist, but he's a predator. So it comes to him naturally. These brain patterns in your mind render you a resonance or an extension of the abuser. Your brain synchronizes with his brain. Your brain becomes one with him. The waves in your brain reflect totally the waves in his brain. He had penetrated your brain, taken over, and generated waves identical to his waves. From that moment, you are enmeshed. And training leads to enmeshment or merger fusion mm. in a relationship. So this is the second phase in training. I mean, uh, third phase, fantasy, dissociation, fantasy, dissociation, and training, enmeshment. The minute you're enmeshed, you are no longer you no longer exist as an independent entity in any meaningful sense of the word. It's a little like hypnotic suggestion. In hypnosis and in abuse, suggestible people are the core constituency. So what do we have in hypnosis? We have words, post-hypnotic suggestions. You know, post-hypnotic suggestions. You wake up from the hypnosis and I tell you Brussels and you kill your neighbor. Mm which anyhow you wanted to kill. So it's the same with in training in abuse. Mm. The abuser maintains post-hypnotic control over you. He had entrained your brain. He had engendered these brain waves. And from that moment, anytime he repeats the abusive text, the catechism, the catechism of abuse, anytime he does that, he generates in your mind these brain waves. And he has kind of, post-hypnotic control over you. This is the entraining. These are scientific facts. This is not a conspiracy theory or wild speculation. We have done this with music. So I don't see any difference between speech and music, mm. especially structured 
repetitive speech, such as abuse. So then, at that point, when you had become a slave, or in computer terms, a client, when you had become a, a slave or a client of the abuser, you are at his disposal. And at that stage, the abuser seeks to transfer regulatory functions from you to himself. So let me recap. I know I'm repeating myself, but this is extremely complex material and recapping and is helpful. All, all of it is essential. Everybody has to understand yeah. each piece of the puzzle here or it's not, not gonna make sense. Yeah, and everyone can, can spot himself, can find himself somewhere. Yes. So it starts with grooming. The grooming is intended to induce a dissociative state, a state which involves dissociation, amnesia, depersonalization, derealization, fantasy, and so on. And this is called the shared fantasy. It's a little like hypnosis, a lot like trance. When this happens, the abuser starts to entrain you. He creates in your mind brainwaves which reflect his brainwaves. Your brainwaves are totally synced, totally synchronized with his brainwaves. From that moment, you are one mind. Mm. You are a hive mind, become one mind. By the way, this has been documented in, in rock bands. Mm. The, there were studies of, of uh, the brain activity of players in a rock band. All their brains generated identical waves when they started to play. It's like it was one mind. So you become one mind with the abuser. Why? What for? Ab the abuser wants you to transfer regulatory functions. To do that, he needs to disable your autonomous brainwaves. He needs to implant in you, like the Manchurian candidate, he needs to implant in you his own brainwaves. So now your brain is a reflection, an imitation, a replica, a copy of the abuser's mind of the abuser's brain. So now the abuser takes away from you regulatory functions. You regulate as a healthy person, you regulate your emotions, you regulate your moods. There's, there are many regulatory functions taking place every second of the day. Mm. And what the abuser does, he takes these regulatory functions away from you. You're, not, you're defenseless. You don't have your own wave patterns to defend against this intrusion. It's like your firewall has been disabled. It's like the, the abuser had installed malware in your mind. And so now he uses it to transfer regulatory funds. From that moment, the abuser regulates your emotions. The abuser regulates your moods. And anyone who has been in an abusive relationship will tell you this, yeah. that they, the abuser controls their moods. The abuser makes them happy, makes them unhappy, makes them depressed, makes them, it comes from the abuser, it's external. And the abuser does this using a series of techniques. First is intermittent reinforcement, hot and cold, love you, hate you, and so on. Second is approach avoidance. I wanna be with you, I don't wanna be with you. Trauma bonding, which you had discussed a lot, and abuse verbal abuse other. So using these techniques, the end result is that you are an empty shell. All your internal regulation had been outsourced to the abuser. 
externalized. And so you stand there like a zombie or a robot in a bed horror or sci-fi movie, and you're waiting for the abuser to activate the very various modules of your mind. The abuser decides how you're gonna feel. The abuser decides what your mood is gonna be. The abuser decides even what you're gonna think and when. You have handed control totally to your abuser via the process of shared fantasy, dissociative shared fantasy, and then training. These twin processes had rendered you a, a tool, a machine, a device used by the abuser. The, the entrainment, and now I'm coming to emotional artifacts. The entrainment and training you means reorganizing your mind. That's the meaning. When, when, I, when the abuser entrains you, what he does, he accesses your mind, he activates certain wave patterns, he deactivates others and so on. So he's reorganizing your mind. Your mind. The minute he does this, he generates you continue, but you continue to, to generate emotions and cognitions. I mean, that is unstoppable. No one can stop this. As long as you're alive, you're gonna emote, you're gonna think. Many people, many scholars think that emotions are subspecies of cognitions. But at any rate, you're gonna have emotions, you're gonna have cognitions. This is unstoppable. Not even the abuser can turn it off. But what the abuser does, having taken over your mind, he had rendered your emotions and your cognitions not yours. So we call this non-autonomous cognitions or in non-autonomous emotions. This is a clinical term, non-autonomous cognitions. Non so you continue to generate emotions and cognitions. You continue to experience them as authentic, as yours, but they are not yours. They are induced in you by the abuser, not intentionally sometimes, often actually not intentionally. It's a predator, it's like a shark. You know, the shark doesn't analyze the blood before it, it pounces. I mean, sharks, that's what they do. Predators, that's what they do, they take over your mind. And from that moment, any cognition and emotion you have is actually a reflection of cognitions and emotions of the abuser because the abuser had taken over your mind and all the brave patterns and brain waves and so on and so forth in your mind are not yours at all. Although, although obviously you subjectively experience them as if they were yours, obviously. Would, would it even be possible for the target to acquire some of the mental health issues that the abuser has? Like if I'm not prone to abandonment Absolutely. anxiety, but I suddenly find myself riddled with abandonment anxiety. Is that yes, possible? Of course. of course, everything. Your brain becomes a clone of the abuser's brain. Now, everything I'm telling you is well-documented in neuroscience, but in neuroscience, they studied the effect of music. So, for example, uh, they, they demonstrated that a single mind a single mind can take over a group of minds uh, via music. Mm. They demonstrated that if you listen to a waltz, your brain will react with the same frequency as the waltz and actually will become, your brain will become a giant waltz machine. Mm. All the brain waves will be canceled and the only brain wave that will remain, it's called a spike, will be equal to the 
frequency of the waltz. That's why our bodies move when we listen to music, because we have no other waves, only this wave. It becomes dominant, it moves the body. So in the study of entrainment or entraining via music, there are, there are con conclusions, conclusive findings that show one, that one mind can take over another via music. Two, that music can eliminate all autonomous brainwaves and induce a non-autonomous brainwave from the outside. Music, simple mm. music, waltz, <laughs> not mm. abuse. Uh, other, there are other findings, very frightening findings, by the way. So I think abuse is even worse than music because the exposure to the abuse is much bigger. And I mean, how many times do you listen to the same song? Right. But the exposure to the abuser is much more extensive. The surface of the exposure Immersive. is much bigger. It's repetitive. Mm. So it's, it's, you know, it creates pathways in the mind, in the mm. brain, mm. physical pathways, whenever you hear. That's how psychotherapy works. The psychotherapy, mm. talk therapy, has this effect on the brain. The brain is neuroplastic. Mm. But the brain is much more neuroplastic than we had known. And so I have, I have a video from October last year about entraining. It's a video about the neuroscientific findings regarding and training. Mm. So anyone and everyone can go and listen to this video. It's only 15 minutes. And it describes this, to my mind, terrifying findings. Mm. We are far less independent than we think. Far less. We are far, far more influenced by outside stimuli than we ever imagined. It's absolutely shocking. And... Um, so there is no doubt in my mind that the abuser has a massive impact via entraining on the victim's mind to the point of taking over. But the activity of the mind continues regardless. Mm. So you will continue to generate emotions and you will think they're yours. They're not yours. Cognitions, they're yours. They're not yours. The waves of the abuser reflected in your brain, your brain is a clone, will be interpreted as yours. So if he is anxious, you're anxious. If he's narcissistic, you will become narcissistic. If he's, you will begin to mirror the abuser. You will become, you begin to be, to become the abuser. This process used to be described as enmeshment, and there were there were big studies on folia de madness in two. Later, it was called shared psychotic disorder in the DSM, shared psychotic disorder. We know that people become clones of each other. There is even a study, a famous study. On the physiological level, women who had been put, nursing students who had been put in the same building, their menstruation synchronized mm -hmm. and they all had, they all started to menstruate on the same day. Mm -hmm. We are synchronized animals. We sync to each other. We, we become one in, in social groups and we always become one. We always become a hive. There is a colony element that we tend to deny and ignore because we live in an individualistic age. Mm. The individual is God. The individual is the idol. But as the object relation scholars in the 1960s in Britain, in the United Kingdom, had written, this is nonsense. What we call individual, what we call self, is relational. Mm -hmm. It's the outcome of interactions with numerous other people. It's a Venn diagram. These two circles, we are the common area. So 
it's it's ridiculous to claim that we are you know not reacting to outside influences and so on. so these emotions that you experience is yours but are actually not yours yeah they, they are the abuses these are the artifacts once sh once the shared fantasy is over you have a problem because it's been, it's a dissociative state so you don't remember there's no memory memory is is the foundation of identity and identity is your bulwark is your defense against artifacts against intrusion from the outside what is identity identity is protected by boundaries identity is where i end and you begin if you don't have an identity you're wide open if you don't have memory you don't have identity so the disruption to memory in the dissociative state uh, creates identity disturbance and then you're not able to resist intrusion by the abuser but even when the abuser is gone you can't reconstruct there's no ability to reconstruct because there's no memory yeah you've been wanting to say something since you were young <laughs> the um, the problems i'm having with my memory specifically to um examples of abusive behavior in the relationship I think if I understand you correctly, you're saying it's because of a dissociative state has been induced in me. Yeah, dissociative state. Would, would that dissociative state increase during periods of abuse? Would I would I then am I more likely to forget abuse than just like a cup of coffee then? You're likely to forget anything the abuser would like you to forget. Sometimes the abuser wants you to not forget the abuse. He mm. wants to teach you a lesson, kind of mm. condition you. Mm. Sometimes he wants you to forget the abuse because he's in the love bombing stage or grooming stage. Mm. So it is the abuser that decides what you will forget. The abuser's control is total. There has been studies in and training where we were able to reconstruct a musical piece from EEG, from wave patterns of the brain. Wow. As, as, um, one of the researchers constructed a Mozart piece just by being given the EEG. So now what is a musical piece? Musical piece has many voids, has many empty spaces, empty. So a musical piece is a kind of simulation of memory and dissociation. Mm -hmm. Think of abuse as music. It has empty, empty, empty moments with no sound and moments with sound. But the abuser decides whether it's Mozart or a Bach or Deep Purple, it's the abuser's decision. So the abuser, directs your dissociation it's directional dissociation and i will not go into it right now but the typical reaction is the creation of self-states it's it's very complex what happens after that is pretty complex to the victim it's interesting that it's got this musical element because isn't in the myth of narcissus his partner is is echo and she simply echoes whatever he says which is a yeah. perfect metaphor for brain entrainment isn't it yeah true I think the repetition element is critical in music and critical in abuse. And I think abuse is a form of music, in effect. So when I said to you, oh, could I be caused to feel um, love and obsession that I don't really genuinely feel? Um... You do. You, you do. You think you do. Okay. But, but these are imported feelings. These are, these are, are projections. They, are they hers? Are they her feelings about herself? Yes. yes. Ah. So you experience them as yours, of course. It's inconceivable to you that your mind is, had been hijacked. It is. And been snatched, basically snatched. 
yeah. it's inconceivable to you. You still yes. maintain the core of I am, yeah. I am. So you would you would take ownership of these, right? Uh, of these in, invade intruders. Think of it as a virus. Yeah. When the virus enters the body, it penetrates a healthy cell. Yes. Now the healthy cell doesn't say, "Excuse me, uh, you're a virus. Get out of here. We don't tolerate immigration." No. The healthy cell accepts the virus mm. and begins to copy the virus. The healthy cell copies the virus. Mm. It becomes a machine for copying the virus because the healthy cell doesn't make a distinction between him, itself and the virus. So the healthy cell says, if you're here, you must be okay. You must be me. Shit. You must be me Shit. because you are DNA, your RNA. You must be me. No other explanation. It's me. Okay, I'm going to copy you. Just so the audience is hearing what you're saying, when these um, external cognitions and emotions come through, I hope everyone can hear how dangerous it is that instead of going, oh God, I'm being abused and this isn't my thought, I'm the victim of abuse, you are thinking pre-consciously, this is my spontaneous thought and yes. my spontaneous feeling. Yes. You can't even begin to resist that. What are you, you wouldn't, what are you resisting? Yourself? Yeah. And many people, many victims would describe you to you this sense of inner battle, mm. this sense of they are fighting themselves somehow. They, they mm. feel torn. Mm. They feel ego incongruent. They feel like they're falling apart. They feel, and they don't understand why. Mm. But actually they're battling an invasion. They're, they're battling uh, a pathogen coming from the inside. Right. Now, again, with the example of the virus, the cell sees a package of DNA coming its way, or RNA, that's a virus. Mm. And the cell says, wait a minute, RNA is what I typically do. Mm. Like you would say, emotions is what I typically have. Yeah. And the cell says, okay, RNA is what I typically do, mm. so I'm going to do it, and begins to copy the RNA, which is the virus, it's on the cell, it's a mistake. You would say the same. Emotions is what I typically do. So if I have an emotion, it must be mine. And I'm going to own it. Yeah. I'm going to adopt it. Yeah. After the abuser is gone, this continues. Why? Because you don't have memory. You don't have the glue. The, the glue that holds your identity together is gone for that period. So you don't have any firewall. You don't have a way to fight back these emotions. They, they linger. They linger for a while because you don't have memories of being you. During this period, you don't have memories of being you. It's that critical. During this period, you have memories of being her, but not memories of being you. Even when you think you have memories of being you, these are, these are memories of being her. It's pretty shocking, but we are beginning to, in, in, in clinical psychology, we are beginning to accept this. It's, a, it's programming, like cult programming. Well, and it would explain pretty much any question that a client would have about what they're experiencing about recovery from narcissistic abuse or not being able to recover from narcissistic abuse. And the not being able, I'm now wondering if you're sort of, you're trapped in like a graveyard shared fancy space, even after they've gone, it's not like they close it down for you. They're not like they go, oh, well, I'm leaving now. So let's, you don't need this anymore. Let me unhook you. They just leave it in. 
Yeah, that's a prolonged grief. The prolonged grief disorder is when you mourn two things. Mm. When you mourn uh, the self-love that you had experienced, mm. because the narcissist allows you, lets you experience self-love, true mm. self-love. Mm. You fall in love with the idealized image that the narcissist creates of you. Mm. And that is irresistible. So you mourn this. But even more importantly, you mourn the missed time. You mourn the lost time. There's a period, there's a hiatus, there's a, there's a, a, a lacuna, there's a vacuum where you should have been. It is a two-year-long uh, vacuum. It is a half-year-old vacuum. It could be 20-year-long vacuum. Mm. But in this period, you did not exist in any meaningful sense of the word. The abuser had taken over and supplanted you, substituted for you. You became a, a clone. Uh, you, you did not really exist. You lack, you lack functional memory. You felt very often that you behave in ways which are alien to you, mm. a process called estrangement. Mm. You felt derealized very often. You were not sure about reality, what's true, what's not, what's going on, what. Anywhere in a, in a fantastic space, in a paracosm. So this time is lost, totally lost. And when you come to and recover, it's like you've been in coma. Imagine you've been in coma for 10 years and you wake up. You will mourn the, ten, the lost 10 years. But in coma, at least, no one takes over your mind. <laughs> Here, yes. So part of the job of recovery then post-narcissistic abuse should probably be trying to distinguish what's, what's mine from what's theirs because it will Absolutely. all be modeled. Absolutely. I have several videos on distinguishing introjects, distinguishing mm. internal voices, mm. making the work of telling which voices are genuinely, authentically yours mm. and which are imported or fake or false. Or... So this is uh, one thing. And second thing, memory recovery is crucial. And that's why we, we have many scholars working on false memories, abuse memory. This memory is crucial. Yeah. One of the main reasons, one of the main reasons therapists were trying to kind of recover or retrieve child, sex, childhood sexual abuse memories is that the main problem with abuse is the ruination of memory, the undermining of memory. Trauma is about memory. Trauma is dissociative by definition. Yes. Even complex trauma is dissociative by definition. Indeed, yeah. indeed, one of the main criteria of borderline personality disorder is dissociation. It's one of the DSM criteria, dissociation. Mm. And Judith Herman, the mother of CPTSD, mm. she, wants, she wants borderline personality disorder to be abolished as a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. She says, what is this nonsense? It's all mm. complex, complex trauma, mm. you know? Mm. And she's right. I fully agree with her. All these conditions, narcissism, business, they're all complex trauma. Mm. They all involve massive disruptions to, to, memory, to continuity and congruence of memory. This is what the abuser is doing to you. Mm. And so you can't recover because you can't, you can't retrieve your memories. After you had retrieved your memories, you can reform connective tissue. You can reform yourself, your self. And then having formed or reformed yourself, you can get acquainted with it. And then you're able to tell which voices are real and which are not, but not before. Not before you had recovered your memories and reconstituted or reconstellated yourself.
So the job then is distinguishing between uh, what are your interjects, what are their interjects, and then coming back to yourself and trying to recover your memories. And, and you're saying the memories during that period of abuse where you were not present, that's yeah. what you must, must yeah. recover yeah. so that you get your yeah, identity that's, back. That's classical thinking. That's, that's not me. That's very classical. That's, we do this with sexual abuse uh, in, in DID, in DID work. This is done in dissociative identity disorder, multiple personality disorder. We do this regularly. The only thing is to extend it to all abuse. Yes. Now it's now it's common in some types of abuse. Yes. Because there was no understanding of entraining. Yes. They said, ah, sexual abuse, there's an invasion of the body. Ah, mm. that, that's bad. Let's mm. deal with it. Mm. But verbal abuse is an invasion of the mind. It's mind rape. Mm. It's entraining. So, but they were not aware of the concept of entraining. It didn't exist until mm. recently. Entraining shows us that words, sounds, sounds, music, words, they can synchronize brainwaves to the point that original autonomous independent brainwaves are eliminated. Gun, dead, <laughs> nema, as we say in the Balkans. <laughs> well, that, that, would, uh, that would account for memory loss, a strange behavior, feeling other people's emotions. Yeah, you're, uh, not you. you're, you're not you. You're, you're, you're really just not you. You're, 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 not you're you. a clone of them. Yeah. It's really disturbing. It's a really, yeah. it's a really sick idea, but um, it encompasses everything. It encompasses all the confusion, all the bewilderment that you, you described. You said it was estrangement. You become estranged to yourself yeah. through this process. And so I want then, to go on. Sorry, please, please go ahead. No, no, no. Uh, ju just that um, when people are walking away from a narcissistic abusive relationship and they think, "Oh my God, they're so wonderful," and I was so in love, and the sex was great, and I'm obsessed with them, we really should put a question mark on all of those feelings and all of those cognitions because it might not be yours. That they, might be narcissistic. Yes, they implanted these in your mind within the shared yeah. fantasy. Mm. The I want to repeat, just mm. to be clear. Everything I've said is the common wisdom in certain types of abuse, mm. which are physical, mm. like sexual abuse. We just need to take the very same concepts mm. and, and apply them to verbal abuse mm. or psychological abuse. Mm. That's all. That's all we need to do. And add, add the idea of entraining as the mechanism, how it's done. Because until now, no one understood how it's done, why the dissociation, why the memory gaps. Why the feeling, why the estrangement, the feeling that you are not you. Mm. Very often a victim will tell you, I don't know what came over me. It wasn't me. I, I don't know why I did this. <laughs> I didn't feel, it didn't feel like me. I would have never done this. I did. Victims deny sometimes. Said, me? No, I never did. I would have never done this. No way. Yeah. So, yes. so, that, so, that, so me asking you somewhat naively, I realize now, is it possible I could be feeling things that I don't really feel? The answer is yes, but it's way more than just having, oh, you feel a feeling that isn't yours. It's that your mind is completely hacked like a computer for a period of time. Think of the, think of the abuser as a parasite. A parasite who invades your mind and then colonizes it and then subverts it and transforms it into a factory. So that's what parasites do. Parasites, for example, in cats, parasites in cats, 
they change the behavior of cats completely. They make cats into mice lovers. I'm kidding you not. You don't have to believe me. Go online. <laughs> Parasites subvert the brain of the mouse, of the cat, and render the cat a mouse lover because the parasite needs the mouse as a vector of transmission. So parasites have this capacity to alter the minds. Of, so that's what the abuser does. He's a parasite. He invades your mind, colonizes it, transforms it, and uses it as a factory. What does he produce in this factory? Cognitions and emotions, which are conducive to the sustenance or sustainability of the shared fantasy. Because it is within the shared fantasy that he controls your regulatory functions. I have a question for you. This is that this will be a good one. How do after the narcissistic relationship can we and how would we close that shared fantasy space? Or is that even a useful thing to attempt to do? The minute you recover your your memories and distinguish the the fake or inauthentic introjects from the authentic introject. Mm. The shared fantasy cannot continue. The shared fantasy relies critically on dissociation. Mm. On dissociation and the suspension of a state of self, of a constellated self. So self is a defense against such intrusions. The self has boundaries. It's, uh, so the self is a defense against the world. It's where you, you the boundary is where your self ends and the world begins. Mm. When the self is not constellated, is porous, and so on, you have psychosis. The psychotic person confuses internal objects with external objects because he has no constellated self. Uh, same with the narcissist. He confuses external with internal because he has no self. Narcissist has no self. That's the irony. He's selfless, especially me. I'm selfless. So the, the minute you have a self, which must be constructed on foundation of continuous memories. Mm. So the minute you have a self and the dissociation is done, the shared fantasy will crumble, cannot, cannot be sustained. Okay. Um, I, the, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to speak is because I'm processing this uh, for me. I'm processing this selfishly as, as well. And it's a lot. It's actually... Well, there hasn't really been anything new that I've heard in narcissistic abuse for, for a long time, but and especially in narcissistic abuse recovery, this is a major, major piece of the puzzle. It's a change in orientation. It's a change in orientation. There are other changes taking place, which are in academia. It starts in academia, and then, you know, 10 years later, it's in self-help books. And, like Judith Herman started with complex trauma, then Walker, and so um, in academia now, there are, there are quite a few revolutionary trends. For example, we are seriously, I'm saying we because I'm, now I'm deeply in, in these circles and so on, mm -hmm. and because I'm one of the main proponents of this. Mm -hmm. So we are seriously considering to dispense with the concept of individual. And instead of self, to talk about an assemblage of self-states with a selection mechanism. Central selection mechanisms. One example of a major, major change because then the whole concept of personality disorder crumbles. There's no such thing as personality. There's no such thing as self. And what you have, you have self states. And what we call today personality disorder is the tendency to select certain self states regularly, and so on. So here's one one direction. 
Another direction is to regard trauma as a language, a language element, so that actually we use trauma to make sense of the world and to organize it. And so this is why so many people are wedded, religiously wedded to their trauma. They refuse to let go of the trauma. Mm. Never mind what you do. They mm. are invested emotionally in the trauma. They love the trauma. They sleep with the trauma. They, I mean, because the trauma is, a, is, their, is their language. They make sense of the world through the trauma. They, are, they organize the universe and imbue it with meaning via the trauma. Take away the trauma. You make instantly the world meaningless to them mm. and so on. So trauma is a language. They are uh, dissociation, the role of dissociation. So I begin, we begin to distinguish between total dissociation and what we call uh, permeable, permeable dissociative partitions. So disso dis partial dissociation. Mm -hmm. So for example, self-states that trade some information, but not all the information. Yeah. So there will be a common repository of information shared by all the self-states, but there will be proprietary information specific to the self-states alone. And these are permeable dissociative partitions. It's a fascinating concept because it explains many things we couldn't explain until now. And there's nothing, there's nothing in that that I would, I mean, obviously I haven't, I haven't studied it, but like what you're talking about, the selector of different states, the permeability between, and not to assume there's a, an equal permeability between different states. Why would there be? There should be different levels of permeability between different states because mm -hmm. Of protection and uh, self-image and perceptual filters, I like that. In fact, I would just, I would, I would, I would just say, well, that's it. That's what we're looking for. the The idea of one self is really, really out, outmoded. It's really, really outdated. And the personality, as as I, I saw you say in a video, like it's the very notion of personality is just an, an interchangeable mask. But we talk about it as though it's a thing. It's you. No, it was never you. Persona is Greek for mask. So personality disorder implies this order, a, an ordered personality. What the hell is that? Show me one. I'd love to see him or her. Yeah, there's a lot of abstractions, a lot of idealization. But yeah, yeah. Ideals that have no place anymore, I think. We, yeah. current state of knowledge does not support these really antiquated approaches don't forget that the concept of self came into being mm. when the atomic theory was at its height mm. so like atom the mm. indivisible particle you know mm. like atom self mm. uh, the self is the atom of the person it's the indivisible yeah. part every generation is influenced by by the mores and the myths and the narratives so, you know, this, the, this, this, the psyche, the soul used to be compared to a typewriter. Mm. That was the high tech of the time. <laughs> then it's compared to a computer. Yeah. And yeah. because there are computers now, what, what yeah. else can we compare it to? Computers. Yeah. No? Yeah. So this is the, so we shouldn't take these things too, too seriously. The humans are fluid, mm. fluid and recombine all the time. We know, for example, for sure, there's no such thing as memory. That's already been established like 20 years ago. There's no such thing as memory. Every time you, every time you try to remember something, mm -hmm. you reconstruct the memory from zero, from scratch. Right. You take part from here, part from there, emotions, this, that, you put them all together and you reconstruct the memory. Consequently, mm -hmm. all memories are fiction. Right. 
well over 90% of memories have never happened the way you think they had happened, and close to 50% had never happened, period. All memories of fiction sounds like a quote that could have been written by George Orwell. <laughs> yeah, you speak. <laughs> Thor a thoroughly Orwellian idea. Memory is fiction. Fiction memory. is truth. Fiction <laughs> is truth. Memory is fiction. Yeah. Sam, I want to thank you uh, for coming on and, uh, and, and talking to us today. I really, really appreciate it. And um, I hope we could do it again on, on some of the other Maybe subjects we didn't get a chance to, to explore. Um, but thank you very much for coming on. Anytime. Thanks.